The following program is a paid commercial, which has been paid for by the advertiser, whose products and or services are featured in this program. Mindful of your health. Sponsored by Emergence Health Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of EHN's Mindful of Your Health podcast. I am your host, Noreen Jaramillo. Today, we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Rodriguez Chevrez, who is a psychiatrist and Chief Medical Officer at Emergence Health Network. Now, he has decades of experience in this field. So today, we're going to cover a lot of different topics regarding your mental health. So first, I want to say thank you, Dr. Rodriguez, for being with us. It's my pleasure to be here. We appreciate that we have your your expertise and your experience to, to discuss many different topics. For a nominal fee. Oh, <laughs> for a fee. We'll have to put that on the tab. <laughs> so I want to go ahead and start off uh, with some of that experience you have. You have uh, many different years. How, how many years have you been? This December will be 40 years that I have practiced psychiatry. 40 years. How many of those years here in El Paso? 35. Really? Yeah. So a lot of experience. I came for experience. three and El Pasoanians convinced us to stay. Yep. So here you've been are. here ever since. Well, Se second home to us. We're, we're better off for it. So one of the things that I want to touch on first is what have you seen over those years? Any any changes, any progress in regards to treatment of, of mental mental illness and mental health? Well, oh, there's definitely been progress. And don't get me wrong, we have a way to go. Okay. But I trained at the time where there were only a handful that you could pick from, let's say, antipsychotics, antidepressants, the same thing. Okay. Not that they didn't work, but they were what we call dirty in a sense of potential side effects. Okay and different reasons why people would not stay on their medicines, which is so critical to maintain the response, no? But now we, you know, the last 20 years or so, I mean, really, the industry has revolutionized in reference to the options, the way they work. Before, they pretty much were cookie cutters. They work the same way, maybe a little different here, to call it differently. But now there's different mechanisms to actually regulate neurochemistry in the brain, which is what controls our behavior, our mood, our emotions. Okay, so that's good news for, for uh, folks out there who uh, might be a little bit uh, scared about seeking treatment? Skeptical. Skeptical, that is the right word. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, it is. It could be a little bit overwhelming, but there's there's progress being made. Of course, and, and now it goes beyond medicine. That now there's different procedures. One, I think we're going to talk about yeah. later on, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. ECT, electrocomposite treatment, has been around forever. And as scary as it might sound, it's safe to do and response, the response rate are, are really, really good. There's other uh, type of uh, procedures like a vagal nerve stimulator, VNS, uh -huh. those three, word, three letters. Okay. Uh, that's actually like a pacemaker that okay. is placed uh, to kind of piggyback the vagal nerve, which is a nerve we have that goes all the way to the brain and actually get to the brain that way and create neurochemical changes. So we definitely have gone the distance. And if you've heard the news, the medical news as of late, there's a lot of work with hallucinogens mm -hmm. as well in reference to, well, this is the thinking. If this can alter the mind in this way, which was unfortunately used recreationally, right. 
uh, why not explore it, what it can do to the brain on a positive side of the equation so we can have better options that work faster, that have a better response rate. An example, the response rate for antidepressants right now is 60%. And like I tell my patients, that's great if you're in that group. But what about the 40%? But if you're in the 40% that they don't work predictably, then it's when we're scratching our head and trying to do the best uh, we can in order to get people some relief from such painful condition. Okay. And having those options is a good thing. It is a very good thing. Perfect. Okay, well. I, I can only hope and pray and hopefully I'll be around to see even more changes uh, moving forward. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad that there's progress there. How about progress in regards to the stigma associated with, with mental illness? Now, I know back in the day, uh, you know, even having a diagnosis of cancer might have been something you didn't talk about. But now it's talked about and, and a lot of awareness out there. How have we done with the stigma with, with mental illness? I'm going to introduce some biases of mine. Here. Okay, go okay. ahead. You can do that here. <laughs> <laughs> because we need to start by thinking about the concept, the name mental illness. Okay. It's really just reading it, just saying it, it's, it's hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. You know, I can say I have diabetes, and I do. And, and if I go to my doctor and we, I might compare notes with the patient next door, it's, oh, you're taking such and such? And is it working for you? Where's your A1C been? Right. And, you know, it's a <laughs> okay. natural conversation, but you don't see that. It says, oh, you're mentally ill too? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just, just that concept that something's really wrong with your mind. And it might be, it's like I tell my patients when they ask me, well, doctor, how much of it is, it's, is, is in my head? My answer is 100% of the brain is in the head. <laughs> okay. And that's where the problem is. So really, it should be referred to more as a neurocerebral condition. I know that's a mouthful, but really that's what it is. It's the, a medical condition. It's a highly medical condition. Okay. Yeah. To answer your question, we're getting there. We're a lot better, but we're not where we need to be. There's still stigma. There's still superstitious. There's still these uh, biases, uh, you know, uh, that you can sense pretty much. You know, I, I mean, again, going back 40 years, we have Made come progress. a long way, but there's still even even the way, let's say, insurances compensate for care. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't tell somebody that has a heart disease. You had so many visits, and sorry, right? You know what but I mean. But you do that with with visits to your psychiatrist. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, I, that's getting better too. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I mean, things are moving in the right direction. I could say that probably slowly, but moving. Okay, perfect. What can we do as a community to help in that area? In regards to stigma, is it starting conversations? Is it? I mean, how do we go about that? You know, I would say that. One thing that I use in my practice that we can all use okay. is validate, validating. Validation is so critical. Somebody might come to me with my seeing the weirdest thing ever I heard. I'm going to listen and I'm going to have a good eye contact. Okay. I'm going to make some suggestions from a professional point of view. If it's a friend, a neighbor, a family member, then it's a different approach because you shouldn't be treating people that are really close to you because you lose the objectivity that you need, right? But to make it as casual as you can and as accepting as you can be, even though you might not even understand it, and that happens oftentimes, is that how, especially people who fight taking the medicine, for instance, is like, why does it take this little pill for me to 
not be depressed, sleep well, not be anxious, not have panic attacks or whatever. They question it. You know, I don't say, what does it take to me to take this medication to keep, keep my sugars fine so I it. can have my eyesight and no, don't lose a leg or my life. Right. You know what I mean? But exactly. this thing about the mind is, the mind is like, oh, no, physically I'm fine, you know. And I even remember when I was training, there was a separation between something organic. That's like a tumor or mm -hmm. something going on in the brain, something structurally wrong or whatever it might be, as opposed to functional. But we, we kind of, as we learned, okay. uh, there was more research, we kind of moved away from that because the evidence kept accumulating of mental conditions being actually neurobiological with a strong genetic component. And that's what oftentimes people have trouble understanding. We don't inherit conditions we inherit the risk of developing them. It's okay. a predisposition, it's a vulnerability that might present itself or it might not whatsoever, right? right. Because it depends on other factors, environment. Now keep in mind, if somebody grows up in an environment where, where the gene pool is not the best, let's say, okay. especially related to mental conditions and so forth, and then the environment is chaotic, dysfunctional, that's a double whammy. Okay. And then if you add trauma, abuse, neglect, that's Another a triple strength. whammy. Mm -hmm. So the way I, I put it to my patient is, the, the more you throw in the sauce, the thicker the sauce is gonna get. Not only it gets more complex and more difficult to treat, but also response rates down the road, the more you have, the less predictably you might do, whether it's with medicine, psychotherapy, or any of the modalities that we have nowadays to treat these conditions. Okay, so this leads me to my next question. I am assuming, and you, you correct me if I'm, I'm on track, that with any medical condition, diabetes, uh, heart condition, cancer, the earlier the treatment, technically, hopefully, the better the outcome. Is that the same when it comes to this? That is just the same, you know. I don't know if you're aware of, about a national program we have, and we have one here, here in El Paso with EHN, that's the first episode of psychosis, right? Yep. The whole idea there is let's not wait till they went 10 times to the hospital, they stop responding to medicines, they develop a drug problem, blah, 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 which is what we see oftentimes with comorbidity. That's more than one condition going on, right? Okay. So the earlier you can intervene, whether it's just with therapy, talk therapy, or good advice or whatever it might be, or just a good diagnosis mm -hmm. to start with, so you know you're in the right track, the, all studies have shown clearly that the earlier you can recognize and treat, the better. Okay. And you know, I, for many years, I used to see kids and adolescents, and I, I, I could see it in the faces of, of the parents, and even they would tell me, it's like, it's a stage, you're gonna go over, I, I was the same way, or my brother was the same way. Well, there's certain lines that you shouldn't be crossing. You know, it's like I, I would tell parents, it's like, you, you gotta pick your battles. You can't be going to war for just about everything. Right. You know, yeah. the room, the clothes, the school. The, right, you know? when it comes to their health, right? <laughs> yeah, and before you know, there's nothing to reinforce, right. anything good <laughs> to kind of bring that ego up and make it more functional, if you will, right. and that kind of thing. And, and it has to do precisely that we lack understanding. That's why education is so critical. You know, as a doctor, and, and I, I don't know how many times I say this and how many times more I'll say it, I see our role as educators. 
is critical. Not only teachers, I mean, you teach in the process, you should be teaching in the process. You know, not only about the illness, but about health. Right. Okay, well, that leads me to another question. So mental illness, mental health, we mental wellness, we're, we're hearing all mm -hmm. these buzzwords. What is the, um, you know, what is the, the difference between them? Is there a difference? What should we know? Well, in those first two, yeah, one is about... When I say health, we're actually, I'm, I'm leaning to the positive thing of the equation, right? Right. When I say illness, it's already, mm, something's okay. wrong here. And that's what I'm saying, terminology is so critical and important in people understanding and accepting a condition of any type, you know? Yeah. And there's some, there, let's face it, some people might not be interested in learning. That's their prerogative, right? Right. But you would think that the better ed educated you are in the process, as a community, you know, then the better outcome you can have down the road, right? So, mm -hmm. and I, I laugh about it because this is another thing I tell my patients. It's like, I tell them like, do you know what makes a good doctor? Okay. What makes a good doctor is a good patient. <laughs> do you know what makes a good patient? A well-educated patient. But some people don't really want to learn. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it just, you cannot give up, let's put it that way. You know, as physicians, as therapists, as teachers, as parents, as neighbors, okay. you know, we should leave that door open in reference to being more amenable about accepting certain things. Maybe not even agree on them, but actually being able to listen, like I was saying, and validating, because that's where you start, that's where, we, where you engage people, whether start you do that. this professionally or not, you know? I mean, somebody can be like psychotic, Mm -hmm. or we say crazy, mm -hmm. but they might, they're probably not dumb. They know when you engage them in your eye contact, your gestures, how well you're listening to them and what are you doing with the information you're receiving. All of that is so critical. Okay, that's, that's an important first step. Yep. Okay. I could talk to you forever, Dr. Rodriguez. Um, you, you briefly mentioned uh, some of the um, progress that we have made in, in regards to treatment. So we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more uh, about what's called the TMS therapy for depression. Learning about that when we come back. At Emergence Health Network, your behavioral health is our commitment. For more than 55 years, we have been serving our community, providing mental health programs, substance use treatments, assistance for our veterans, and 24-hour crisis care. This is us working for you. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Rodriguez, we want to touch on the TMS therapy, which is for depression. And this is something relatively new to EHN, but we want the public to know that it is another service that we provide to help with depression. Can you tell us what TMS is? Sure. Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Because it's not really that new. Okay. It's just that it takes years for research, approvals, Approval. mm -hmm. insurances to pay for it, you know. FDA, right. all that kind of stuff. So that it's been popularized over the last few years, yes. Okay. Uh, and it's basically, unlike medications, it's actually a stimulation that you conduct through a coil mm -hmm. that you put right on, on, on the skull, on the uh, uh, frontolateral uh, okay. lobe, basically to stimulate 
the, uh, that, that particular area that has to do with mood, creativity, energy, etc., that is afflicted by people suffering depression, right? Okay. At this point, the FDA approved a protocol, which is actually 36 sessions, and it starts Monday to Friday, five days a week for the first four weeks. The last two weeks are to win people off. Okay. But that's the pro protocol approved for treatment-resistant depression. Okay. So meaning that you have to have a history of failures, usually about three, not only three different antidepressants, three different classes of antidepressants, okay. and it also adds psychotherapy. So it varies because some insurances might say, no, we want two. Some might say, we want five. Okay. No, we don't need a history of therapy. And yes, we need it. Some even include electrocompulsive treatment, believe it or not. So, but at least they're, they're compensating their pain for those services. Why? Because the data is clear that it works. Okay. And especially for people who have whatever biases against medicines, which there are a lot of people out there. Right. They don't like them. It it, it, it it presents really a good option. One, like I said, it's for treatment resistance. So I could only imagine what how it would work in somebody that is not treatment resistant. And I hope I see that day where the patients can be given that option. You want medicine? Or you, you want TMS? You want both? Okay. You know, and let the patient take that responsibility, that decision making in the process of, of getting better and recouping you know, and, and so forth. So what I have read on this particular treatment is, and, and you briefly talked about it, but how have you, what are the results have you seen here with your patients? There, There's a, a good success rate. How has it been received here locally in Alaska? Quite a bit, quite a bit. I believe there might, I wanna say, and maybe don't quote me on it, but there might be four or five different clinics, including ourselves that have it. Uh, and I think it's a great thing because we, we're offering to community an option mm -hmm. that otherwise they will have to go to Houston or Dallas or bigger one city. of the, the, the bigger cities. And how have the results been? The result being splendid. I mean, uh, we don't do research, so I couldn't really tell you the actual data, although we should probably start collecting Keeping it because it's there. Yeah. Uh, but I want to say that easily we're talking about a, about an 85% nice. response rate on treatment resistant. Right. You know, so th what that's what happen, I'm saying. What right, would it happen would, if you're not giving it to people who are proven not to really to respond first. to conventional treatments? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, because, again, it's relatively new. So there's all kinds of protocols being developed, but not approved by the FDA as so yet. Okay. PTSD, addiction, schizophrenia. I mean, it's, it's a whole bunch of all of them in research state, submitting data to the FDA to, to, to get it approved down the road. Okay. And as we do that, we obviously gonna be able to capture a much larger audience, yes. if you will, because there's a lot of people in need out there. I mean, this lack of response of the actual treatments we have is not only for depression, pretty much across the board, whether it's anxiety, it's a thought disorder like schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, and again, the more we get familiarized with those terms and what they mean and how they can be affecting you mm -hmm. or the people around you, in a much better place you're gonna to be to actually recognize it. Okay, and when we recognize it, then we understand it a little bit more and the word that I've heard used is um, coping with it, uh -huh. managing it. Are yep. those those yep. those words accurate? Oh yeah, definitely. 
Okay. Because keep in mind, and that, this is another thing that I try to explain to my patients is, remember education, right? Right. Is, is that precisely the medicine, even if it works for you, is only going to do neurobiological stuff. Okay. It's going to help you sleep, feel better, you're not depressed, now you don't want to die, now you're not having death wishes, suicidal thoughts, etc., etc. Right? Mm -hmm. But when you add therapy to it, especially cognitive behavioral, you actually add then skills, coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, you know, um, relaxation techniques, yeah, uh, how to deal stuff with that we always say, oh, that sounds good, uh, let's meditate. But, you got to do it. <laughs> yeah. But you probably do it for five minutes and right. forget about this one. Or you're <laughs> okay, asleep. You if you're like me, you, you start meditating and you're asleep, which I think is a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> you okay. Know, so. okay. Uh, so good. So that we have that option. I want to switch gears a little bit. And in the time that we have left, I want to talk about um, the relationship between the mental health component and substance use disorders. There's often um, a relationship there, right? Oh, you're a big one. Unfortunately, okay. I must say. Okay. And, and what call, happens? What we call it comorbidity. Okay. It's when one condition is tied up to the other one. And keep in mind that both can coexist independently, or three, or four, or whatever it might be. Okay. Right. One does not to be need to be secondary to the other one. It's like what came first kind okay. of question. The egg, right. <laughs> but yeah, but it doesn't really matter because they can coexist independently and feed on each other. Okay. Example. We know for a fact that chronic depression, we call that nowadays, we call it persistent depressive disorder, used to be called dysthymia. By definition, you have to have at least two years. Okay. With an acute bout of depression, we call that MDD, major depressive disorder, is two weeks. With chronic, two years. But people who are dysthymic uh -huh. usually have been depressed for a lifetime okay. since they were children. You know? Okay. In fact, the most common age of onset if you look at any of these, whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, the, the depression, uh, depressive disorder, is actually mid-adolescent to mid-twenties. That's when that's when we see the onset of it. Yeah, well, it, that's the bell curve. Okay, got it. So it could happen before, it could happen afterwards, but it's it's, it's rare to see somebody develop schizophrenia at forty. Okay. In fact, in the early DSMs, mm -hmm. which I'm a part of, <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> <No>. years. <laughs> yeah, in the. It used to be an exclusionary criteria and cannot be diagnosed if the age is over 40. Okay. Then it got political about the age, you know, I have a case that it was 42 or whatever. So now they took that away. But us clinicians that have been in the field long enough mm -hmm. understand that, you know, you're not going to see a geriatric patient develop all the sudden schizophrenia. Okay. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say never, you know, but I, I haven't seen it in 40 years. Yeah. I seen it diagnosed, but it's wrongly diagnosed. Got it. But because then you have to look for something else. You know, in fact, I still uh, subscribe to the 40 year thing. If I see somebody even close to 40, 37, 38, first episode schizophrenia, I'm looking for something else. It might be that, but I gotta look for something else, but because it's not common. Okay. I mean, by far it happens early in life. Got it. And uh, Okay, so the part about the the substance use, the way I've, I've heard it in an, an example is sometimes uh, individuals will have, let's say, depression. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to treat it. They don't know what it is. Uh, they don't want to go to the doctor. So then they self-medicate. Is that a part of it? That is a concept that we've okay. been dealing with as well, self-medicating. Now, after you start using for a while, where do you draw the line? 
what are you getting of using alcohol or cocaine or whatever it might be, weed or whatever it might be that now goes beyond treating what you initially were treating and now you're just getting high right. or low. You know? Okay. Because people who have downers have lows, not, not really highs, right? So, yeah. And, and again, oh, that's what I was heading and I kind of got moved in a different <laughs> direction. <laughs> because if you look at studies, they, they'll show that the comorbidity is right around 40, maybe 50%. In our experience, it's probably higher than that. Really? Because keep in mind that that's data that's collected. There's data that is missed. Okay. because it's never reported, right? Yes. Or because of the same reservations we were talking about before, about mm, not me. Yeah. You know, look yep. at the neighbor, but not me. Right. Uh, but we know that a fact is very high and that if you don't treat one, you, you're not doing a good service to the other and vice versa. So I remember when I was training many years ago, mm -hmm. you couldn't really give an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer to, an, let's say, an alcoholic until they were six months sober. Oh, wow. Okay. You know what I used to say? Good luck. That's an accomplishment. I mean, you know, most people relapse. Yeah. Within that time. People relapse, you know. So when you're going to get there, now that's not the schooling now. The schooling now is if it smells like an addiction or an abuse problem, you address it just like you need to address the other one. Okay. You know, you might need to take turns. Because oftentimes, especially if you're dealing with medicines, you have to be very cautious about what you're combining. Okay. And uh, on a real quick note, we do offer that at our Westside Clinic where we do have, where they treat both at the same time, correct? That you is know, correct. Uh, in one location. In one location. That's okay. our Westside location. All righty. Anything else, doctor, that you want to... Um, to make sure that we get out to those who are watching and those who are listening. What is the most important message that you want them to know? The most important thing, it, it's getting help. I mean, when you need to and not postponing it, uh, it's going to go away or, you know, wait till, I don't know, Tia comes from whatever, uh, she'll take care of it or whatever it might be. You know, there is help uh, at, at Emergency Health Network. We actually have 24-7 crisis line. You could go there, you could call there, you could get an appointment there, you can get the level of care that you might need for you, your family. Don't hesitate. I mean, okay, so so we might be a, a bit cautious initially, but there's only so many signs that you gotta say, oh, now, wait a minute, we, we have to do something about this. And that's the first big step is getting that professional help. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez. Like I said, I wish we had more time. We could talk forever. Maybe we'll have you back and do another episode because there's so much that I would love to pick your brain on. And, oh, well, likewise, and, <laughs> I love that. Okay, and there's so much information that we want to make sure that, that our community knows when it comes to their, their mental health. And what we're taking away from this is there's a lot of resources out there, but we got to take that first step and that's, that's seeking that treatment. That is correct. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And thank you so much for being with us for this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for letting us be mindful of your health. Brought to you by Emergence Health Network. We'll see you next time. The preceding program was a paid commercial, which has been paid for by the advertiser, whose products and or services are featured in this program.